Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today is December 29th, 2011, and our guest tonight will be Howard Josepher from Exponents, the Arrive program, and our second guest will be Ray Eden Frank who, from uh, the uh, former Minneapolis Naval Exchange, where I used to volunteer, Access Works. Before we start the program, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest tonight is uh, Howard Josepher. I've heard him present live recently at the ASAP conference, and it was very fascinating. He's uh, started one of the first harm reduction programs in New York City. It's called the Exponents Arrive Program. Howard, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing just fine, Ken. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about Arrive and Exponents and how all this got started, when it got started. Just go ahead. Sure. Well, the the ARRIVE program started uh, at the height of the AIDS epidemic in 1988. It was a uh, one of the first efforts that was created through funding from the National Institutes on Drug Abuse to address the rampant rates of HIV infection and deaths among injecting drug users. Uh, I was asked to, to come in and help uh, get the project off the ground. It was uh, it was a terrible time, 1988. Uh, tens of thousands of uh, drug addicts, their lovers, their family members were becoming infected and dying from HIV-related uh, illnesses. Uh, there were no medications. There were no treatments. Uh, there was also a crack epidemic going on at that time, and uh, in, in draconian uh, prison sentences were being handed out for uh, possession of uh, small amounts of drugs. So it was a, a, a frightening time, especially if you were someone who was who was using drugs, and uh, you know we we uh, I understood some things about addiction treatment. Uh, I'm a recovering person myself. I had been through uh, therapeutic community uh, treatment program, but AIDS was uh, a brand new, and, and people didn't know that much about it. There was so much fear, so much stigma, and so that we were asked to create something to uh, uh, you know, to help the people who were who were some who were living with HIV, some who were not, but we wanted to prevent the spread of it. So, I uh, guess we were asked to to do something that had not been done before, and it was that kind of an environment that actually shaped the program that we created, which was Arrive. And it was a, an actually an acronym for AIDS Risk Reduction for IV Drug Users in Reentry, meaning it was uh, recently released parolees who were re-entering society. And uh, yes, 
And how does this program differ from the more traditional treatments like therapeutic communities or 12-step treatments? Well, the uh, again, the the what was happening at those times really dictated the 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 shaping and the practices of the program. And w- first off, was that you you could not tell a, a, a drug addict, uh, an injecting drug user, that they had to stop using drugs before they could come into your program. I mean, we, our mission was to prevent the spread of HIV and care for people who were living with the virus. So to tell them they had to shape up and sober up before you would help them was just, uh, it was just not going to serve uh, what we were what we were doing. So by being willing to take people into our program who were still using or people into our program who were actually in recovery, uh, in a sense, we created uh, maybe the first harm reduction program in the United States. We, we did not intend to create harm reduction. We were not trying to prove anything. All we wanted to do is to be helpful. So that that uh, was was something we thought that was just intelligent, the intelligent way to proceed, and so uh, that was very different. Another difference is that we saw that people, as they started to come into the program, that they had many uh, experiences in drug treatment where whereby they they were actually uh, considered failures because they had relapsed, they'd gone back to drugs, and we did not want to reinforce their sense of failure. So instead of focusing on what was wrong with them, their pathology, we, wa- we decided to focus on what was right with them, to to look and see what were their strengths and to build upon those strengths. Uh, the third thing that I think that was very different about the, our whole approach was in looking around at that time of where was successful outreach happening, I saw in the gay community uh, an extraordinary social uh, intervention happening within within the gay community with gays with one another, reaching out, educating supporting one another, but the way they did it was without judgment. And so we we adopted a non-judgmental approach. We weren't going to tell people they were bad for what they were doing or they were wrong. Uh, we just were not going to judge. And when it comes to engaging people with drug problems, uh, uh, a non-judgmental approach uh, is radical. It's very different. So those those three uh, uh, were key key differences in our approach to uh, engaging and working with drug users: a harm reduction approach, a non-judgmental approach, a strength-based approach, building on the building on strength, supporting people instead of you know like traditional treatment did, which is to break people down or psychoanalyze them. Uh, we were we were going to just help them to develop the skills and give them the tools they needed to take better care of themselves. 
Tell me a little bit more about the strengths that you see in drug users and uh, how you approach them on this strength-based approach. Well, you, you actually, there are a great many strengths in a, in a drug user, uh, uh, even when that person is actively uh, using. I mean, it's not easy being a drug addict. You've got to work at it. And, and uh, you know, we know that when uh, a drug addict is, uh, intends to get high, he or she can move a mountain. They're going to, uh, if there's a, a mountain between the, the addict and their bag of dope, they're going to go over the mountain, around the mountain, under the mountain, or pick the damn thing up and get it out of the way. And that's power. I mean, you know, I, I asked the participants in my program, how many times when you were using, how many times did you go to bed at night without any drugs, any money, and the next day you got up and you got high? You found a way to get high. That's power. And the power comes from the focus. The addict is focused on drugs, on getting high. And that single-mindedness is a very powerful state. Now, you can adapt that state and focus on something positive, focus on something that can truly nurture and support you in being or becoming or getting what you want in life. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a capacity that you can help someone to learn from their, that when they were in their most self-destructive state, the focused mind, to transfer that state into, into a more constructive, positive focused mind. So that's strength. And that's a way of helping someone to understand that they have these capacities, they have these strengths, and they can accomplish a great deal if they focus their mind. I've heard you talk about mastering the beast within. Tell me a little bit more about that concept. Well, when you when you're strung out, your your addiction, your addiction is in control of you. And I see that as a beast, that there is a beast within. There's a beast within everybody, except if you're a drug addict or had been addicted, you cannot bullshit yourself about this beast within. We, those of us who had been addicted or are addicted, we, we let this beast out. We gave it its head. Other people in society may have a beast, but maybe their beast goes for money or their beast goes for sex or their beast goes for food or it goes for shopping or it goes for power. But there's a part of us that could take over and it makes us do things that are, are, uh, are terrible. So here we have this, the, the addict has a beast within that is a very powerful force, and that beast doesn't care about the individual. It just wants what it wants when it wants it. And so the idea of, of having this powerful force, even though it's a self-destructive force, 
But the idea is not to kill this force. You don't want to kill this beast. What you want to do is master it so that you could have this force at your disposal to do what you want it to do. In our program, we're not interested in people who've been addicted to become goody-goodies and they're nice and they're sweet. No. We want, we want them to, to achieve, to get what they want from life. We want them to, to speak up for themselves, to advocate for themselves, and maybe also to advocate for changes in our society that they feel need to be made, they feel passionate about, and that they may be willing to speak up about. So that, that beast is a powerful force and it can be mastered. And when it's mastered, you have a powerful person, someone who can accomplish things. So you take and the force. And I want people coming to my program to know that they have this. So you take the forces that were uh, drug-seeking forces that were very powerful and change them around to be seeking other goals that the individual wants to achieve for themselves. That's right. That's right. And, and and what it takes again is, in a sense, the beast. The beast is the troubled mind. It's the it's the troubled mind that got most of us into, you know, into the jackpots and into the difficulties and into the addiction. It's the troubled mind. So it's again, it's 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 had in mastering the beast. You're you're mastering your own troubled mind. And that is is certainly not an easy feat. But it's a doable feat. Many, many of us have 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 done this. We've accomplished this. So do you see people that use drugs often using them for self-medication of things like depression, anxiety, and so forth? Well, that is the way I, I see it. I do see it as a form of self-medication. And I, I think that's, you know, if you're going to look at addiction, uh, um, drug or alcohol addiction or any kind of addiction, you're 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 going to see when it comes to a substance, you're going to see, uh, you, if you look at it as a form of self-medication, it, it is in a sense a, a, a non-judgmental way of looking at it. You don't hear good or bad in self-medication, and so it, it it's helpful to to see it that way. And 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 if you're self-medicating, well, what are you self-medicating? What is it? What is a person self-medicating, if not their feelings, their pain, their suffering, their anguish, their anxiety, their discomfort? And what is all of that, if not symptoms of depression or some other kind of condition? So, in a sense, what what we what we are dealing with at the root is some kind a mental health condition a very real condition like depression that if you're suffering day in and day out and day in and day out uh at some point you're going to look to medicate that condition i think the the importance of this is that for the addicted person themselves to understand what is at the root of their problem it's not just that you're some screwed-up, character-disordered person. No, you've got a very real condition like depression and that 
similar to 25 million Americans who are taking legal drugs to cope with their depression, the people who we arrest and imprison simply have turned to an illegal drug to cope with their depression. But it's the same depression that's underlying all of it. And I find that when you, especially with the people I work with, the inner city drug addicts, that when they start to understand that what they're dealing with is 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 a very real chronic condition like depression, I think it, it helps them to get on top of it, to start ad- addressing and dealing with the root of the problem, not really with the with the symptoms that result from this condition. And it's a kind of condition that can get better, but it never goes away completely. It's chronic. Just like addiction is a relapsing condition, condition it doesn't really go away. I mean, you may not you may not get high, but those feelings, that depression is going to come and go for the rest of your life. So it becomes very important to learn about depression, to be able to recognize the early signs, to be able to have coping mechanisms. And one one clearly early symptom of depression is negative thinking, the troubled mind. Ah, the beast is raising its head. And so when there's that kind of negativity starts to show up in a person's thought and they know what this is about, then they could start using their tools, tools like thinking positive, like gratitude, like looking at the bright side of things as well as the negative side. But when you're looking at the bright side, when you're, when you're, you're you know, being grateful, you're, you're balancing that negative side with some positive. If you're out of balance, you're in pain, you're going to self-medicate. If you balance yourself, you're not going to be in so much pain, and you won't need to medicate. So these are the the kind of uh, tools and understanding that we teach people in our programs so that they could master this beast, they could learn to, to cope more successfully with the depression that underlies all ad- addictive behavior. Well, I can completely relate to this. Um, I'd suffered a lot of depression in my lifetime, and I used a lot of heavy alcohol use to deal with it, and then I did learn techniques, other techniques to deal with it, cognitive behavioral techniques to change my thinking, to stop negative thoughts, to replace them with positive thoughts. And, you know, it really worked. And, you know, when there was uh, no longer that depression there all the time, it was much easier to change drinking habits, to cut back, to not rely on this anymore, and to just make it a much smaller part of my life. Yes. You see, see, these are survival tools. And in our program, 
this is what we do. We provide people with the tools, and that's how to how to cope, how to balance oneself, how to how to uh, step back and look at those troubled thoughts without necessarily identifying oneself with the troubled thought. Like, let's say you 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 know you you want to you see a thought. Oh, I want to get high. Well, just because you had a thought, it doesn't mean anything. Just because the thought comes, and if you could just step back and observe it, witness that thought, the thought comes, the thought goes. And that we are no longer controlled by the, 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 you know, the troubled mind, the, the mind, the part of the mind that, that chatters, goes yama, 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 yama and telling you all kinds of bullshit and all kinds of negative things. You, you do not have to be at, at, the, uh, at the control of your troubled mind. So learning, learning these tools uh, is, becomes very important. And in our work, that's our job. We provide the people with the tools. If they use the tools, great. If they don't use the tools... That's not up to us. It's like doing the work, being a, 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 in the addiction field, is like being a farmer. You till the soil and you plant the seeds. And if those seeds grow and that person changes and that person has a better life, that's up to a power greater than ourselves. That's not our job. But our job is to provide people with the tools and the skills and the understanding. It's their job to use those skills. Like you say, you know, you, you know, it, it's the mind. And if you learn, if you learn some of the some of these tools, you can master this beast, and you can overcome addiction, and you can overcome depression, and live a creative, uh, contributing, productive life. I'm just curious, have there been uh, any outcome studies on the effectiveness of the exponents approach? Yes, we've had a, a number of studies. The Actually, the very first ARRIVE, uh, when the program was a, a NIDA-funded program, there was a rigorous research study that uh, compared the individuals who went through the ARRIVE program to a control group uh, who did not go through the program, and the program showed that it had uh, significantly better outcomes on numerous levels. Uh, better as, as these were all in, in the original arrive was all people coming out of prison, and that they showed better uh, community adjustment, much safer practices when it came to uh, to sex, and that was and is still very important when it comes to uh, AIDS and all the infectious disease that goes on. Um, it, it showed a more openness to getting help and furthering both their education and their personal development. And over the years, there's been a number of other studies maybe not as rigorous as that first one with the control group, but that have demonstrated that this ARRIVE program 
which is the foundation for all of Exponent's programs, and we have 14 programs now. But this ARRIVE program uh, can produce uh, positive behavioral change in individuals who participate. And the program itself, with this evidence, was recognized by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the federal government, SAMHSA, as a best practices model for uh, individuals who had been or are involved in the criminal justice system. And that's important because where we, you know, we, have, we have hundreds of thousands of people who come out of prison in this country every year, and the odds are stacked against them. Recidivism is very high because there's, there's very little assistance for people coming out. Jobs, forget about it. There's no jobs. A place to live, it's, it's hard to find. Uh, uh, networking, becoming uh, 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 engaged in, in social networks, extremely challenging. So someone coming out of prison, uh, you know, the game, the deck is stacked against them. It's, it's, it's stacked in a way that it's meant for them to go back. So when you have some kind of intervention, some, some programs that can actually help people by, by teaching them these survival skills, how to, how to manage, you know, some of the, some, not only the, the mental health conditions, but so many of the uh, chronic health conditions that people who have abused drugs and abused alcohol have, that, you know, you're giving, you're giving them some kind of way to, to cope so that maybe they don't uh, relapse or they, they don't regress and become recidivists and end up back in prison. This is where we need to focus, uh, make a, a, a significant focus in our country, is helping people who are coming out of prison. We've got well, well over 2 million people in prison in this country, mostly for, for drug-related uh, crimes, many for nonviolent, just possession crimes, and we're spending millions and billions and billions of dollars locking people up, and there are better ways of engaging and helping these individuals, and much less expensive ways of engaging and helping them. We've got to we've got to stop this bullshit, you know, of locking people up because they're self-medicating their pain. Another approach is needed, a, a, a health approach rather than a criminal approach. And I, I like to think that we're one of the many, many people who are, are uh, or programs that are helpful and, and can uh, address some of, these, some of the, the issues that these individuals are dealing with. Okay, we've got about two or three minutes now to... Uh, Time goes by when you're having fun. Yeah, it does. Hey, yeah, we're going to conclude this segment in a, in a couple more minutes. I see our next caller is waiting in the queue here. So I want to ask you a couple quick questions. Uh, is, does the ARRIVE program, is it time limited? Does it have a definite beginning, middle, and end? Uh, yes, the ARRIVE program uh, is very much like a three-credit college course. It meets three times a week. For eight weeks, 24 classes. Each class is two and a half hours. 
and then you complete the program. Uh, it, it has been very successful. We started with seven people in a basement of a church, seven people just out of prison, and now here we are into our our uh, 23rd year, and we've got more than 9,700 graduates, and every single person has attended voluntarily. The popularity of this program is all generated through word of mouth. And when, when you got drug addicts coming to a program voluntarily, it just tells you some of the commonly held beliefs that there are about addicts that they need a gun to be placed to their head or sanctions over their head in order to get help. That's a lot of bull. If we can create, we can create programs that can attract people, that can engage people. Anybody that's out of control somewhere really wants help, but they don't want to be judged, they don't want to be put down, and they don't want to be punished. And that's the kind of help that we offer. Okay, and the last question. How can people find you? Where are you on the web? www.exponents.org. Okay, Howard, thanks very much for being our guest tonight. It's been a great experience, very informative. Well, Ken, thank you for having me. All right, we're going to bring on our next guest right now. Our next guest is uh, Ray Eden Frank, who uh, was the executive director at uh, Access Works, where uh, I volunteered doing needle exchange. That's how I studied harm reduction. Ray, how are you doing tonight? I am well, Ken. How are you? I'm doing very good. Um, well, I haven't had a chance to catch up with you for a long time. Uh, what kind of work are you involved in these days? Well, it's ever-changing. I'm I'm actually um, the uh, currently at a one position. I'm going to be starting a new position in a couple weeks. So um, what I'm doing now, and it's, an, it's sort of interesting to try to figure out how this fits into harm reduction, but I'm working um, with the state of Minnesota in the Department of Human Services, working with um, treatment centers, licensing treatment centers, so that they can provide chemical dependency treatment in the state of Minnesota. So um, it, the exciting part about that is I get to work with a lot of different providers who are providing different types of services. It's not um, it's not boxed into uh, it, the, the services don't have to be abstinence-based. In fact, there are many providers in the state, and I was excited to learn this doing this work, that are providing all kinds of different types of treatment. And, of course, there's methadone treatment and, and that type of thing, too. So that's what I'm doing currently, and I've just accepted a position with the environmental or the public health department at the county level um, to work on some um, environmental health, particularly around um, recycling and hazardous waste. So I'm really excited to be able to um, tie in some of the stuff that I did at Access Works around um, needle disposal and safe needle disposal, and I'll be working on some campaigns around that and some other type of recycling and uh, solid waste. So kind of a big switch, but <laughs> exciting. So that's where I'm at. Well, I remember the last time I talked to Tamara Graham. She said that she had met you because you were involved in this work licensing programs, and she was very she was very impressed. She said, I met your friend, right? Yes, yep, she's uh, one of the definitely one of the providers in the state that um, is, has been able to to work with the state guidelines and state regulations and be able to provide services that aren't 
um, the typical treatment model. Well, tell me, how did you get involved with Access Works? Well, really quickly, um, Access Works uh, was around for several years, originally known as Women for a Point, uh, doing needle exchange in uh, Minnesota, in Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and then I think in 2009, due to budget constraints and the crash of the economy, it was closed, so it's currently uh, out of out of business, not operating anymore. But uh, how did you get involved with Access Works and, and uh, move to be the uh, executive director? Um, well, I started out as a um, the uh, the program had just received a large grant from the Centers for Disease Control to do HIV testing, specifically for injection drug users. So it was a really exciting time. It was 2000. Yeah, it was. To, uh, the fall of 2000, and I think it was one of the first needle exchanges that had gotten federal money not to do needle exchange at that time. There was, you know, the federal ban was was in effect, but to do um, but to to do outreach to injection drug users, um, specifically around uh, HIV testing. So I was hired um, to work on that program, and um, and just loved it, and and really. Um, connected with um, Sue Purchase, who's the founder and who has incredible energy and passion around um, working with drug users and harm reduction and um, and uh, providing really good public health messages in the community and is, uh, presents services and, and pro- provides services in a non-judgmental and respectful way. And I just learned so much from her. And um, through that program, um, a lot of what I did, I'd come into it sort of with a counseling background and social services background, but did a lot of the program development piece of it, so marketing, advertising, um, you know, reporting, all this kind of stuff, and really found that I liked doing that. So when the program manager position opened up, I applied for that and um, and uh, was hired for that position. And then um, when I was in that position um, – for a couple of years, then it became clear that the executive director at that time, David Hamilton, was really wanting to tr- transition out of the position. And so I was able to work firsthand with him and learn all the ins and outs of grant writing and um, fundraising and staff supervision and human resources and just the whole huge um, component. And at the same time, was able to um, also be involved um, really hands-on with program development, and uh, so then when he left, then I applied for that position and was promoted into the director position, and um, so that's kind of the long and short of it. I just and, wanted to... Um, oh, go ahead. Going. Well, I was just no, going to no, mention, <laughs> mention quickly, uh, we had Sue Purchase on the show here a couple months back, so if people want to go back and listen to that interview, yes, we had a good interview with her, too, founder of Access Works. Wonderful. Yeah, and I think um, one of the – what was really exciting for me and what I had a lot of passion for and and gives me a sense of, like, knowing that work can also be fulfilling was um, working with the um, participants who were utilizing the syringe exchange and really listening to them and what services they were feeling were lacking in other parts of the community and that's how we started a wound care clinic 
because a lot of our participants were coming in and saying, look, we've got abscesses, we're going to the doctor, they're treating us like shit, like this is just not working. Can I say that on here? I don't uh, know. You can say it. <laughs> <laughs> what language I can use. Um, but, uh, you know, just like we can't, we, we you know, they're f- afraid to go to the doctor, afraid of being reported. And so we developed um, the the staff and volunteers of, of Access Works, along with their participants, were able to identify doctors in the community who were willing to work with our folks um, and not be judgmental and serve them regardless of, you know, why they had an abscess, if it was caused from shooting up or, you know, what have you, and provide wound care. And um, we were also, in fact, able to work with a clinic that would see our folks um, without even having to show identification or ins- proof of insurance or anything. And then we worked out a, a relationship with them on a, on a financial level as well so that our folks could go there and, and didn't have to pay. So doing that kind of thing and then the overdose prevention um, project that we worked on and um, uh, got hooked up with a doctor who was able to prescribe Narcan and um you know, the staff was just always, I was so excited um, to work with such dynamic people at Access Works and really competent people and um, people who really cared about other people, like a really genuine, deep sense of care and concern for other people's health. And um, we developed an overdose um, prevention uh, curriculum, and we would do groups, and um, participants would come in and go through a training and learn some rescue breathing, and uh, then we were able to give out prescriptions and um, and doses of Narcan that folks could use if, use if need be. So um, those are a couple of the projects that I worked on that were really exciting ways of kind of hearing from people in real-life situations what was going on and what they needed, and then being able to kind of bridge that with, um, you know, making those connections in the medical community and then in the funding community so that um, there was the money to be able to provide these services. Uh, did you have drug user groups at Access Works? Say that again? Did you have drug user groups where people could come in and talk? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We had, um, You. we called it the users group. Um, the groups would structure and stuff would change and fluctuate over time and um, for a while, there was a women's group that was specifically obviously just for women, women drug users to come in and talk about their issues and get support. And then we always would have um, just a general, what we called the users group, um, for folks to come in. And um, we would change it over time. Sometimes it would be structured, and um, sometimes because of the funding that we got, that we would have, you know, there would have to be an educational piece or component in it, particularly around HIV prevention or hepatitis C prevention. And then, um, um, but it was also, it was very much guided and influenced by um, the participants themselves, you know, what topics they were interested in, what kind of um, uh, either support or education that they were hoping to get. Um, And then we were also able to provide a space for people to, um, around the holidays, um, we had one staff member in particular who was just wonderful about um, finding resources in the community for food. And um, for a couple of years, we put on a Thanksgiving, you know, over the Thanksgiving holiday and just had a drop-in, come and eat. And so um, uh, those were always really well attended. Now, did you uh, – I want to ask, uh, 
if you want to talk about this subject, uh, I know that you're involved with Narcotics Anonymous, and do you find that harm reduction and 12-step programs have some compatibility? I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I myself am in recovery. Um, I have chosen abstinence um, from all, well, I won't say from all because I drink coffee and I eat lots of dark chocolate and that kind of stuff, and I know there's arguments, you know, about really what is <laughs> what are mood-altering chemicals. But, um, you know, I went from um, I was a heroin user and a methamphetamine user for many years of my life, and um, that was didn't work for me. You know, my life was completely chaotic and out of control, and I um, continued to use throughout a pregnancy. Um, uh, so um, when my daughter was three years old, I made a choice that I really wanted to be able to raise her. I wanted to be happy, and I wanted to be able to raise her in the most healthy, happiest way that I could so that she had a fighting chance to be healthy and happy. And so I made a choice to stop using drugs completely and went to Narcotics Anonymous and have found that as a spiritual program and a spiritual component that has um, led me into like a really beautiful, a beautiful life that I have today. And at the same time, I don't believe that that is the way for everybody. And I also don't believe that everybody who uses drugs is an addict. And I also don't believe that everybody who uses drugs has problems um, with drug use. And I also believe there's a huge continuum. So um, when I first started working at Access Works, um, at that point I had, I don't know, I think a year or two, I had not been using drugs for about a year or two at that point and was actively involved in Narcotics Anonymous. And at first I thought, oh, there's this big discrepancy. Like there's this huge discrepancy between 12-step recovery and harm reduction. <laughs> and even even some of the, um, you know, even some of the harm reduction literature was like, you know, there, there was, I remember when I started there was like this sheet of paper which was like harm reduction versus 12-step or something mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that. But, you know, on the left-hand side was all that you know, what harm reduction philosophy was. And on the right side was, like, supposedly, like, contradictory, you know, what the 12-step philosophy was. And and so there was a little bit of period of awkwardness for me. And then I really came to see um, a lot of similarities and a lot of um, of ways of being of that were complementary. And just I think the most important thing for me was to really just accept myself and be okay with who I was and the choices that I make in my life, and th- and that it enables me to accept and be comfortable with other people and the choices that they make in their life, and mm-hmm. not making judgments around that. And um, and as the years went on, met more and more people. You know, I would go to the harm reduction conference and meet lots of people who were in twelve step recovery, and also at the same time fully embraced harm reduction. And so, um, so that's so. And I wish I could give you some some examples. There are times when when I've read the literature, 12-step, narcotics analysis literature, and I'll be like, that is so harm reduction. That is so harm reduction. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I'm, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't prepared to give you any examples about that. Maybe some other time I can, that would be kind of a fun fun discussion, even a fun um, discussion to have with somebody else, you know. And it was, uh, another thing that worked really well for me was, um, you know, having conversations with Sue Purchase about this. And Sue is very much not a 12-step person. Mm-hmm. And um, but we were able to have these really engaging conversations about you know what worked for each of us in our lives and what worked for other folks and um, so that was always really refreshing um, as well as you know to be able to have these dynamic conversations and 
So, um, so while there may sort of be an overarching contradiction that twelve step basically, um, the basic philosophy behind twelve step is abstinence, um, and that's not the philosophy behind harm reduction. So there's fundamentally um, a difference, but um, when you get to the human level, I think that there, there's much more blurring and there's much more um, ability to kind of walk in both worlds and and um, encompass and embrace aspects of of um, both harm reduction and 12-step recovery. Well, I think a time has really come where it's important for, you know, both sides, the harm reduction side and the 12-step, to try and work together a little more. And a lot of people are doing that. And, you know, I know D.B. Stout is one. Um, and we know Alan Clear. We've had him on the show. He's also 12-step, but he's uh, in charge of Harm Reduction Coalition, executive director there. And, you know, one of the things about harm reduction is meeting people where they are at. And, you know, if where they are at is that they're doing a 12-step program and they're happy with it and it's working, then that's really important to accept people there and not say, you know, well, you should do it our way. And uh, one of the things from the 12-step literature, I remember that in the big book, I think it says that we don't have a monopoly on alcohol treatment. So there should be, you know, room for many different paths. Mhm. Yep. And another yeah. thing that I've been blending too now is this um, Buddhism in twelve steps. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and for me, the Buddhism, you know, the perspective of of um, just being mindful and being present in the moment mm-hmm. is very congruent with harm reduction as well. So, I've had um, I one of the um, uh, I love to meditate. And so that has been my attraction to the Buddhism piece. And um, and then, like I say, there's sort of this big movement going on nationally now of, of blending 12-step and Buddhism. Mm. So um, that's sort of like another interesting kind of like um, blending of philosophies that's, that's happening. Yeah, there's a lot of evidence base for this uh, mindfulness uh, for uh, substance abuse treatment and blending with harm reduction. Um Alan Marlatt and uh, the late Alan Marlatt and his colleagues at the University of Washington did a lot of study on mindfulness and uh, substance abuse, harm reduction, abstinence, and there's really a good correlation, it looks like. That's interesting. It sounds like you know some things I could learn from you. There's there's interesting research going on there. Uh, we had uh, we actually did have one on the, someone on the show talk about mindfulness. Um, that was Ronald Siegel, although he doesn't specialize in substance abuse, but you know he specializes in mindfulness. But there's a lot of research at the University of Washington. Um, I'm not in touch anymore since uh, Alan Marlette passed away. He was uh, part of our a part of our board of advisors. Well, I wanted to okay. ask you uh, also. Uh, did you, when you were actively using substances, uh, were you a consumer of needle exchange? I was, I was, and that was one of my great enthusiasms when I came to Minnesota and learned about women with a point. Um, I, um, for most of my injection drug using time, um, I was in. Um, I mean, the first time I ever shot up was in Minnesota because I, I did grow up here, and then I left for um, New Mexico when I was eighteen. Um, so 
um, most of the time that I was using, I was in, um, and I was, I was actually in California, in the mountains, in uh, Humboldt County, northern California, in a little town called Garberville. And then I moved up into the Seattle, Washington area. And in Garberville, there was no, and now this is in the um, 90s, mm. um, there was no syringe exchange. And there was one um, guy that used to be, used to buy and sell with and stuff. He um, lived in Eureka, which was another kind of a little bit of a bigger city in a little bit further north in um, also in Humboldt County. And he would go down to the city all the way down in San Francisco and get syringes. And that's like how I got them, was just from the sky. And then when I moved up to Seattle, um, the Seattle area is when I first, and that was in about 95, um, and um, there was, uh, came into town, into downtown Seattle, and, you know, we were, were, you know, looking for stuff, and, um, you know, just started asking around, and then we were told that, like, you know, I think we were looking for syringes specifically, and within, like, a few minutes, we were told both that, hey, you can go to the table over there, (laughs) Um, actually, yes, this is what happened. We were told, you know, there's a table over there and you can go pick up syringes. So we went to the table and they actually couldn't give us syringes because we didn't have any. And at that time in um, mm-hmm. uh, in Seattle, the um, the syringe exchange was funded by the county. And the, what the county said was, was that it has to be, you can't just give syringes away, it has to be a one-for-one exchange. Mm-hmm. So when we went up to the table, they said, well, we actually can't give you any because it has to be an exchange. But you can go to this pharmacy two blocks down and you can buy a 10-pack for a couple dollars. Um, so they had the information. And, again, pharmacy access was um, accessible or, or, or was an option. So it worked, you know, so we were able to go buy our first 10-pack and then um, in subsequent times go to the syringe exchange. And they had both tables and um, vans um, there was another part of town I lived in that would ha- had a van that came, and they had um, all of the supplies. They had syringes. They had that's where I first learned about safer injecting. That's where I learned about um, hepatitis C. That's where I learned um, they had they had cottons and cookers, and that's where I learned not to share cottons because of the spread of hepatitis and HIV. Not to share cookers. Like I learned all of that from the outreach workers on the um, as part of the needle exchange in the um, Seattle and Tacoma area. Well, that, uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. We just last week, uh, we interviewed Shiloh Murphy, who's now uh, doing the exchange in that area. And, uh, well, it's changed quite a bit. Um, it is now syringes on demand. You don't have to bring any in. Uh, it's now, uh, it's really a user-run exchange. So it's called the People's Harm Reduction Alliance now. So it's uh, it's changed quite a bit. This is in the Seattle area? Yeah, I think it, it's the University of Washington. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I've always wondered, too, because I haven't been back for years to the area that I lived in Humboldt County in California. So I don't know. Um, I know at one of the harm reduction conferences once, this has been years, though, that I met some folks that were from the area that I lived in, and um, they kind of gave me an update on some of the things that were happening and some that there was, you know, more access to syringes at that time than there were when I was there. But yeah, I don't I don't know what the status is there. So when I moved to Minnesota in ninety eight, um and uh 
learned about women with a point. It was exciting, and it was also a different model from what I had seen in in the Seattle area. You know, having in Minnesota, or you know, women with a point was a storefront. Mm-hmm. So it was a um, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages. Um, mm-hmm. The advantages was the you know multiple you know open from ten in the morning until six at night, and you know all you knew where you could go, and uh, the advantages of the mobile unit, of course, was that it would be at different parts of the town, and you know some of those are easier to get to, and some of them are farther away. But the ones that were close were great, you know. So. Well, I know at uh, Access Works, I made a lot of. A lot of crack kits and a lot of needle kits and put together a lot of those. And uh, I handed out a lot of needles while I was there. So it was a very interesting experience for me because, you know, we have these pictures of drug users that the media gives us. And, you know, what you actually see, so many people come through the exchange and they look like everybody else. You know, he's wearing a suit. He looks like a businessman. You know what? What is? It's not the. It's not the impression that you get from movies and TV. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and that's a. Um, I think a good um, message for people to know is that, you know, drug users are all of us. You know, and um, it's not just a stereotypical, you know, junkie. And then at the same time, there is, you know, many folks who use drugs. You know do fit that stereotype and and still are human beings that deserve respect, you know? So there's mm-hmm. sort of that whole, um, yeah. Now, what's the situation in Minneapolis today now that Access Works is closed? Uh, how can people get clean needles? There's a couple of ways. Um, the um, Sue, and I'm actually not sure right now what the status is of Morpheus Project, but there is a project that, again, Sue Purchase, um, founder of Women with a Point, um, started a um, another syringe exchange called Morpheus Project a couple years ago now. And um, so that's, uh, and again, I don't, I, I'm saying this because I know that Sue's kind of in the process of moving herself, but there are some other folks involved in that project. She's always really good at utilizing the community, engaging the community, and and um, uh, so um, although that's not a storefront, you know, it's, and it's at a much smaller level than Access Works was. That's a a syringe exchange in the community here that's mobile or that's um, delivery mostly, I believe. And then um, Minnesota AIDS Project, um, which has also had a syringe exchange for many years. Um, they have a van, a mobile van that, um, and I'm not exactly sure I'm not up on, on the, all of the details of that either, but, um, whether they're doing delivery or whether they're having stationary, um, places, but they are available by phone. So, um, and I've heard, um, oh, and then there's another, um, there's a, um, a shot clinic. There's the, um, Transgender Health Project. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm getting their name right. THP Trans. I think they're um, one of the um, uh, Ian Christensen, who was actually an interim executive director after I left at Access Works, and he was at, he had been on the board of directors of Access Works, and um, he has started up a shot clinic for. Um, it was it was started up specifically for trans folk, 
um, mm-hmm. for um, shooting um, uh, hormones, but um, especially when Access Works closed, they, they, that was a service that was available to anyone. And that's um, on 34th in Chicago, and they do have a little storefront that has certain hours when they're open, and anybody can come in and, and um, exchange syringes there. So that's um, so. There's a couple. There's you know. There's still some. There's still still services happening here. So that's that's good to know. And is it easy to buy syringes at a pharmacy in uh, Minnesota? It's fairly. We still have the syringe, the pharmacy access initiative. Um, so folks can still go in and buy um, syringes at pharmacies. They are not required to. They don't have to participate. Um, so not all pharmacies do. And um, the health department is still, uh, the Minnesota Department of Health is still overseeing that project. And actually, I don't know if you ever met Sarah Gordon. She no, used to be at, um, at the Youth and AIDS Project, and now she's at the health department, and she is overseeing that, um, the syringe um, with the pharmacies. And part of her work is to continue to build relationships with the pharmacies and to um, to go out to some of the pharmacies and do test runs, you know, buy buy syringes and see what kind of response she gets, and do a lot of education with the pharmacy association and um, the board of pharmacy and stuff like that. So that that is something that is um, that's actively going on, and and I'm happy to say that the staff person who's in charge of that at the health department is very excited and very engaged in that project. So, so that's good news too. And she's okay. also doing a lot around syringe disposal too, and and um, and working with the syringe exchanges that are existing, and and uh, working with them on safe disposal. Got a couple minutes left. Uh, any final thing, a final words you would like to leave us with? Well, I just really appreciate you having me on and thinking of me and calling me, and it's always great to hear your voice, and it's really exciting to see the work that you're doing and continuing to do, and I really appreciate that. Um, I just I really appreciate the work that you do and the and the the um the connections that you make between people and and issues and stuff. So thank you very much for the work that you do. Well, thank you for being on the show. And speaking of making connections, um we're starting to work with uh, with one of the exchanges here to do some alcohol harm reduction groups to get a little more outreach to a broader crowd because we've been doing so much online lately. But with, with Vocal Drug Users Union, we did the first uh, our first alcohol harm reduction group there last week, and it went very well, and people said we'd like to have this back again. So it looks like something that I'm really interested in right now is bringing some you know alcohol harm reduction ideas into some of the already existing establishments, the needle exchanges and harm reduction programs that are out there. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight. And I'm going to tell everybody uh, next week, come back next week at the same time. And we will be talking with people from Project Lazarus in North Carolina, which is uh, it's an overdose prevention organization that's had a very good success rate and is working very well with the community. And I don't know too many details yet, but I'm going to hear a lot of details next week. So everyone, thank you and good night. Thank you, Ken, and good night to you as well.